This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast, a very special episode for you today. You will notice that over the next few weeks there will be a number of episodes on aircraft carriers. We have one of our iconic ships episodes coming up on the carrier Ark Royal. I should say now there have been five Ark Royals in the Royal Navy and the one that will feature as an iconic ship is the carrier launched in 1937. And two episodes on American and Japanese naval history, focusing on the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbour in December 1941 and the American invasion of Guadalcanal in November 1942. With so much air power related history coming your way, I thought I would try to find out a little bit more about carriers themselves and in particular the formidable logistical challenges of operating and commanding them. Now, here at the Mariner's Mirror podcast, we pride ourselves in bringing to you the very best people to talk about any particular subject. So, to unpick the frankly bewildering topic of aircraft carriers, today we have no fewer than three Royal Naval Flag Officers to tell us about them. Two retired and one very much still serving, and all with immense experience of the unique challenges posed by these largest military vessels afloat. My guests are Rear Admiral Roy Clare, who commanded HMS Invincible 25 years ago, seeing operations in the Caribbean, Mediterranean, Arabian Sea and the Gulf, with Fleet Air Arm and Royal Air Force squadrons embarked. He later commanded Britannia Royal Naval College and served in NATO headquarters before retiring to become director of the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich and then the Auckland War Memorial Museum in New Zealand. I also have on board Rear Admiral David Snelson, who served in the Royal Navy between 1969 and 2006, on both Ark Royal 4 and Ark Royal 5, in 2001 bringing the ship back into operational service after a major refit. And two years later, he became the Commander, Maritime Forces and Task Group Commander for the Royal Naval Forces in the Second Gulf War in 2003. 
Last, but by no means least, we have Vice Admiral Jerry Kidd, now the Royal Navy's Fleet Commander, and who served as the very first commanding officer of the new aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth, launched in 2014, and the largest and most powerful vessel ever constructed for the Royal Navy. They all brought different areas of expertise to this fascinating question. I hope you enjoy listening to them as much as I enjoyed talking to them. Many thanks indeed for listening. David, I think we should start by addressing aircraft. Let's start by talking airspace and the commander's responsibilities in relation to aviation. Yeah, um, you, you had to have a three-dimensional awareness as the captain of a carrier. Um, it wasn't necessarily just um, airspace and aviation. Of course, there might be something in a tactical situation going on uh, on the surface of the sea and under the sea as well. Um, but in terms of flying, of course, you were flying fixed-wing aircraft in my day in the Invincible class in Art Royal uh, Harriers uh, and rotary-wing aircraft helicopters uh, Merlins. Um, and they had uh, different requirements. I think the most demanding requirement um, was recovering, bringing fixed-wing aircraft back to the deck and realising that in bad weather, they might need to make um, quite a long approach to be on the centre line of the runway. Um, and so if you were in a situation where you had to alter course um, for shipping or because the wind had shifted, then you had to be conscious of the fact that the aircraft behind you trying to line up with the deck would suddenly be displaced uh, if you altered course. Um, so, so that was an example of this awareness you needed um, as you manoeuvred the ship you needed to know what was going on around you in the air. And for that, you relied, of course, um, on the air team in particular, information from the ops room, information from Commander Air and his team um, in Flyco. And that's what makes driving a carrier somewhat different um, to uh, a normal ship. Yeah, uh, fascinating stuff. Roy, do you have anything to add from your experiences there? Well, I'd agree with, uh, with David that that was always one of the priorities and areas that we focused on, I think particularly uh, when something looked like it would go wrong. And uh, there's a kind of safe operating uh, envelope for aviation in a carrier. And there's the wider operational envelope. And if you had uh, one of your aeroplanes, whether fixed ring or rotary, that needed the safest possible, that sometimes overlaid what you would do uh, with normal ops. And we certainly had examples of that in Invincible, where we had a wind that was perfectly feasible for uh, ordinary operations. But my goodness, you had to react quickly if somebody needed the ideal conditions, particularly if you had two or three of those at once. And we had uh, on the operational deployments that I went on, we had up to 26 uh, aircraft embarked. We had RAF and Royal Navy Harriers, quite different kinds of Harrier and three different kinds of helicopter so just being aware, as David has said, of that at all times. It was one of the many reasons why having a sea cabin very close to the bridge was actually quite a useful <laughs> quite a useful device, being able to get there in what was, I think, 11 steps. <laughs> that very handy indeed. Um, Jerry, I, I, this, what Roy was talking about, the variety of aircraft there, I think that's fascinating. Is that a problem that you face today? It is, and uh, fundamentally, flying aircraft from aircraft carriers is, is 
inherently dangerous. Um, you know, obviously the carrier is a moving airfield. It is at sea and already you're fighting the environment in so many ways because the weather can be very changeable. But also you can't call the fire brigade uh, or any help. You know, you're offshore and a long way from anywhere. So, you know, the disciplined choreography that uh, aircraft carrier air operations demands is, is testing. And that requires a whole bunch of professionals. And of course, as David points out and Roy's point out, we're mixing fixing aircraft with rotary aircraft and nothing's changed. So I moved from the CVS days, the Invincible class, through to Queen Elizabeth class. And of course, the numbers of aircraft on that much larger deck have increased. Uh, so it has increased the, the complexity um, of the air operations in itself. And also the number of escorts we have around the Queen Elizabeth class has also increased. And also now, um, it's, it, the unmanned systems are starting to come in. And I think the next sort of naught to five years, uh, we're going to see a rapid increase in unmanned uh, ISR vehicles, you know, carrying a radar airborne and also unmanned uh, refueling aircraft coming in. So mixing unmanned and manned aircraft in the circuit around the aircraft carrier at sea will bring an extra different complexity and dynamic to it. So, yes, you're absolutely right. It's going to get uh, more and more complex as we move forward. Yeah, it's it's almost unimaginable that these things can get more complex. But there you go, Un unmanned fueling aircraft. Um, <laughs> Sam, could I add one yes, one more David, yeah. brief one? And I think that's probably the um, extra frisson that's brought about by what's called non-diversion flying. Um, and so, for most, um, particularly fixed-wing operations from a normal airfield on land, there was almost always another airfield somewhere that the aircraft could go to if your airfield had got a problem. Um, and there were operations in a carrier when you were well away from land, um, when you couldn't um, have a diversion. And so everybody knew the deck had got to be ready or uh, the aircraft, perhaps, if it ran out of fuel, was going in the drink. Um, and, and that brought that extra tension uh, to flying. And when at the morning brief it was announced, this is a non-diversion day, there was that extra uh, tension around the whole team, and that does make a difference. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, we're going to now turn to logistics, which I can only imagine is something of a nightmare, thinking of fuel, food, spares, and, and how is that managed? Roy, you are going to lead us on this. Well, it's, uh, it's a neat segue from aviation in its way, because one of the things that we were able to do in the CVS was to fly and do logistics at the same time. And David has already mentioned that if uh, you're a non-diversion day and you're doing logistics and you might need ideal wind for one or other eventuality, that's quite a complex uh, arena. And certainly we had that on many occasions uh, because with 1,200 people in uh, what was the CVS complement with the air wing, that's quite a lot of food. Uh, with the jet flying and the helicopter flying and the Olympus turbines in the CVS, that's quite a lot of fuel. And then, of course, the NAFI needed to stock up with all its uh, stuff for everybody to buy, the, the nutty and the toothpaste. So you can imagine this was a large-ish village uh, of active, uh, physically active men and women who needed feeding a lot. So the logistics plan uh, was uh, extraordinary. But a couple of quick anecdotes that sort of illustrate the flexibility of the carrier in that arena. The first was a situation up uh, well north of Scotland in very uh, rough uh, winter conditions. And we were at the centre of a task group doing operations. And we had uh, a logistic issue, which was that, first of all, 
uh, we lost the use of one propeller shaft because of a lube oil issue. And uh, so we were on one shaft. Uh, and in that design, that was two Olympus turbines to that shaft. Uh, but one of the Olympus then went down. So imagine the carrier at sea, winter, North Atlantic, the centre of the operations, really, for that task group. And had we had to withdraw, uh, would have uh, severely curtailed the operation. So, of course, we didn't withdraw. And on one engine, on one shaft, you still need to think about logistics. And so there's a method of getting fuel, which is to bring the hose over the bow of the ship, often practised in escorts, less frequently so in the carrier, uh, but it worked extremely well. And my goodness, yes, we had to go on flying while we were doing it. So that, that certainly uh, got a free song going in the ops team, I can tell you. But it was a very nice example of, uh, of redundancy and versatility and of how logistics must go on, whatever. The other example I wanted to offer you was quite different. Uh, we were in the Caribbean. I know it was a tough gig, but somebody had to do it. And we were summoned by uh, fleet headquarters to get ourselves to the Mediterranean as quickly as we could. Uh, this was in the period of Saddam Hussein, and we were due possibly to go through Suez and on to the Gulf. So we got ourselves from Barbados to the Gibraltar Straits to rendezvous with Illustrious uh, to do a stores transfer. See, there's the logistics again. But we had to do it in order to match the fleet requirement at an average speed of 29 and a half knots. We did actually manage to do that. But if you do the maths on the fuel consumption, we had to pre-position uh, a Royal Fleet Auxiliary halfway across the Atlantic. Fortunately, she was able to get there just in time for us. And we did 30 knots to her, uh, pretty much dry of fuel, and 30 knots the rest of the way. And here's the remarkable thing. Uh, both shafts and all four Olympus kept going throughout. Uh, we had no damage, even though it was quite sprightly weather. And if you've never surfed down sea in a carrier, you haven't really tried. And logistics were the driver of the whole of that. And fleet headquarters uh, did say thank you, but actually they just expected it to happen. And of course it did. So the RFA is pivotal and thinking always about the fuel and all the intake, my goodness, and the complexity of aviation. It's what every ship since Cook and Nelson and all that, they've all fretted about logistics, but put the carrier aviation on top. And I think even Cook and Nelson might have had to think twice about some of it. Uh, yeah, there's lots of examples of, of people like Cook and Nelson making rudders out of spars and bits of plank. Um, there, are, you know, you're you saying that your propeller shafts had gone down. I mean, I'm assuming you don't have spare propellers. and <laughs> You can't do anything about that and spare propeller shafts. So your spares only go up to a certain size, I presume. Uh, How does uh, that work? I think it's a really good question. I'm sure that if we'd asked the engineers to make a new propeller, they'd have had a go. But it wasn't actually that kind of problem. Um, where the uh, where the shaft line uh, went uh, into the into the gearbox, there was a lubrication oil issue, which required a particular pump. And we had a spare pump. But I think everybody who runs any kind of machinery knows your spare doesn't always work. And so we needed a spare for the spare. And that was what caused that issue. And had we gone back to harbour, it could have been fixed in five minutes. Uh, as it was, it took a little longer, but we didn't damage the operation while we were waiting for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's very, very concerning when something significant or, or minor actually turns out to be to be incredibly, incredibly important. Um, David, any thoughts on, on logistics? Yeah, I think it's... Um, I'd endorse everything that Roy has said and think, again, it's an example of the sort of 
three-dimensional thinking that you needed in command of an aircraft carrier. Um, you had to have, you know, where is the tanker? Is it with me or is it some miles away doing something else? Um, what is the state of the tanker? Has it actually got enough uh, fuel on board? Um, where's the next store ship? Will I actually need some more ammunition from an ammunition ship? Um, and all of those things uh, come into your into your mind. Now, it may be that, and we'll perhaps come on to this later, that if you've got an embarked task group staff, actually they're doing quite a lot of that thinking, but you don't let them do all of that thinking. Um, you have it in mind um, yourself. Um, modern communications has helped. Uh, so in terms of critical spares for an aircraft or something like that, you can very quickly find out whether that spare exists somewhere. You've then got the uh, logistics problem of how can I get it uh, to my ship via an airhead somewhere? And there's a well-practiced routine for that. And quite often, helicopters were needed to go and get a particular critical spare. Yeah. I'm, um, Jerry, I'm, I'm appalled by this idea of um, becoming immobile on a carrier because a lot of people out there might assume that an aircraft carrier kind of can still function if it's stationary. But of course, you need to be able to move and you need to be able to move in relation to the sea and the wind as well, don't you? Absolutely. And, um, you know, the whole point about the aircraft carrier is one of its USPs. is It, it can move that combat power from A to B over thousands of miles. I think this sort of hooks into the logistics issue that we forget that the carrier striker is probably the most... Um, complicated military formation to put together to generate and then to deploy and of course it's underpinned by logistics uh, and I think uh, David and Roy have eloquently described the fuel food spares and uh, ammunition issues but at the end of the day uh, the reason why we have these um, these incredibly complicated military formations is to deliver uh, combat power persistently and sustained at many thousands of miles uh, from the UK home base and let's look at the Falklands with uh, HMS Invincible and HMS Hermes to prove the utility of carrier striker at range. You know, we need to project power, and my word, projecting power with an aircraft carrier is a pretty, pretty good way to do it. And that is why with the Queen Elizabeth class, following on from the Invincible class, we've invested in the Thai class tankers, and we're about to invest in some new future solid support ships to, to move our ammunition and food around. Uh, but of course, efficiency is now at the heart of aircraft carrier operations. You want to maintain that the flight deck's tempo, you want to keep the ship moving from A to B. Again, I come back to this word choreography, that the clockwork nature of what a carrier strike group is requires this very disciplined, deliberate approach to scheduling of ships and aircraft. And of course, the Queen Elizabeth Group, currently now in the South China Sea, has six escorts around it, uh, two Royal Fleet Auxiliaries and the aircraft, uh, well in excess of 40 aircraft embarked in that force, and that means a huge consumption of equipment uh, and spares and spores. So logistics, critical, and uh, we forget it at our peril. Yeah, I, I think the, the relationship between um, the Navy and the RFA is really important, the Royal Fleet Auxiliary, because on the one hand, um, you know, a carrier is independent, it's designed to be independent, but on the other hand, it's not, as Roy was saying, that you had to have a RFA in the middle of the Atlantic to give you fuel. How is that kind of relationship managed? Uh, well, if I, I, I'll open that one. I mean, really close. I mean, it goes back uh, decades, of course, and uh, the Royal Fleet Auxiliary have served as in peace and war so brilliantly well and so courageously. And people think they are, they are merchant sailors. At the end of the day, they're merchant marine, but they're so closely linked. Uh, often people say they've got one foot in the merchant camp and one foot in the Royal Navy camp, and I think that's absolutely right. But they, they're very proud of that difference, and uh, 
it brings a je ne sais quoi and something that's really quite unique about the uh, the the British naval service is that the Royal Field Auxiliary alongside the fleet air arm, the submarine service, the surface fleet and the Royal Marines. We bring all those five fighting arms together and the Royal Fleet Auxiliary are a critical part of that, not least from the logistics side. Yeah. Uh, Roy, could you add to that? Uh, yeah, and no, I think I had uh, in my generation an RFA officer who was doing the Principal Warfare Officers course, the PWO course, alongside us naval people. And on the staff of Flag Officer Sea Training, uh, I had a colleague who was from the Royal Fleet Auxiliary. So you've got that very nice interweaving of the various skill sets and perspectives. And I learned a lot from those colleagues being so closely uh, embedded with us. And of course, I spent time in RFA ships too and got to know many of the captains and, and their officers. So I think it's a close relationship. There are really good diplomatic advantages to having uh, one force, the RFA, under a blue ensign or a defaced blue ensign, uh, because it really does enable certain things to happen uh, geostrategically and diplomatically that couldn't happen if they were full-fledged naval vessels. So we want to maintain both the separateness and the closeness, if I could put it like that. Right, that's uh, that's fascinating stuff, David. Yeah, it uh, for me it was the expertise actually of the Royal Fleet Auxiliary Officers as well. It was an extra bonus. I've perhaps only appreciated it since I've gone and worked more in the merchant marine arena since leaving the Navy. But of course, the, the Royal Fleet Auxiliary Officers would often have trained with one of the large um, tanker companies, say BP or somebody like that. Um, would have done their cadetship um, in a container ship or a tanker, and they would learn a whole lot of stuff about logistics that the naval officer is unlikely to have learnt. And where I really found their value was actually before uh, commanding a carrier. Uh, I was also in the Caribbean, that difficult gig, when Roy was dashing around the Atlantic, um, uh, helping um, the population of an island uh, hit by a volcano. Um, uh, Montserrat, but I had with me a small Royal Fleet Auxiliary tanker and often we needed stuff and I'd just ring the captain of the tanker and say we need this, that and the other and off he'd go and get it and he knew where to get it That's and of course good. he so was used to working with ship's agents, the port agents, the logistics network that's round the world that supports merchant ships and they tap into that in a way that we in the RN um, don't have the expertise. So the synergy between their professional knowledge as merchant mariners and as, as uh, captains of warships uh, was a really important synergy and I suspect is still the same today. Yeah, I think that's, that's eye-opening actually. The, um, I, I've always thought as the RFA is, is a, as, a, as a huge ship full of stuff but the point is, is they, they, it's more that they know where to get it, isn't it? It's um, extraordinary. So can I just, just come in on the back of David and Roy there that um, you know, I think the, also how we're using the Royal Fleet Auxiliary has really evolved over the last, sort of, certainly the last 10, 15 years where traditionally they have been moving stuff, fuel and food and um, stores around with us. Um, in a task group sense, but actually they're, they're being utilised much, much more now as our as the demand signal on naval forces grows around the world. We're starting to use the Royal Field Auxiliary much more widely. And I'll give example at uh, Wave Night right now is in the Caribbean. In fact, it's just done a, a superb suite of drug busts, I think 200 kilos of uh, 
cocaine taken off the streets yesterday by Wave Knight. So the Royal Fleet Auxiliary are very much uh, integrated into the Navy now, far more than they ever have been. I mean, and I mean that on a relative basis, but, you know, the utility of those grey hulls, um, whilst they wear the blue blue ensign, blue defaced ensign, they are very fundamentally uh, tailored to our missions and tasks around the world. So they are a really, really helpful part of our of our force. Yeah. Roy, you had a point there? Yes, I just wanted to add to what Jerry was saying, that not to forget their role in aviation for us. And a lot mm. of the RFAs have decks, mm. and I certainly thought the versatility of what we were doing, particularly in the circumstances where perhaps the carrier had to focus on the Sea Harrier and GR7 Harrier operations, uh, my uh, RFA was seamlessly there as a rotary deck from time to time. So that that's a really important part of it. I think the other the other thing is the expertise. David touched on this. Uh, in the example I gave of heavy weather north of Scotland in the uh, North Atlantic, I was reluctant with only one engine on one shaft to go and do the alongside replenishment. So when we did the over-the-bow fuel replenishment, both of us, the carrier and the RFA, were using skills that have been there for generations. It was the way to do fueling during World War II. Uh, and we've all, they and us, have maintained seamlessly that kind of skill set so that at just literally uh, the moment of decision, you can expect the kit will be there and the, the, the deck crew will know exactly what to do. It's very impressive how that works. Um, I was thinking about skill sets. I mean, one of the the sort of confounding issues I I can sense from the uh, aircraft carrier is almost all of the, the engineering challenges, whether it's marine engineering, air engineering, weapons engineering, you've got radars, radio, satellite comms, all, all to deal with. Um, David, how is that managed? Yeah, in one sense, of course, um, it's delegated. Um, you've got, um, certainly in the Invincible class, a commander in chief charge of each department, the marine engineering, the air engineering, the weapon engineering, and so on. But in another sense, you keep very close tabs on the things that are single points of failure. And Roy's example of the North Atlantic and losing one shaft gives you exactly the reason why you as the captain kept your finger on the pulse what was going on in engineering departments. And I had learnt in previous commands about these single points of failure. So for me, in Ark Royal, uh, single points of failure, well, there were two gearboxes, one on each shaft, but they were as good as being a single point of failure. Um, there had been problems with uh, gearboxes in the Invincible class, uh, and you knew that if the teeth came off a big pinion, or a bearing went because of a lubrication problem or because it was wiped, then suddenly you had got a major problem. So that was a single point of failure that you kept your eye on. Um, aircraft lifts were another single point of failure. The Invincible class again had some problems uh, with their lifts, were, which were an extraordinary sort of scissor design, um, a, a, a piece of hydraulic machinery uh, which opened up the supports to the lifts like a pair of scissors um, and they had gone spectacularly wrong in the past um, and of course if you lost your lift which in the invincible class uh, was in the center of the flight deck in the center of the runway then you were really constrained um, that's why i think the design of the queen elizabeth class is different in that respect um, and then things like diesel generators yes you had quite a lot of them uh, but you'd be amazed at how much power um, you'd need in a ship 
for everything that was going on and diesel generators were at the heart of the electricity production. So there were particular touch points in engineering. While you had expertise, you had spares, you had some very good maintainers, you needed to know what the important bits of kit were doing and, and what their health was. Um, it just made me kind of realise the whole business of being at sea and how sort of alien and inhospitable that is to engineering. I mean, for those of you listening who have a yacht or even a little rib, they go wrong all the time. <laughs> and it's just, it's it's multiplied, you know, 10,000 fold. I mean, Roy, Roy, you've just been sailing. You were telling me all about it. But um, is it, is it uh, did you understand that, that kind of the sense of concern that knowing that things do go wrong on ships? Uh, every time you put the engine on in a yacht, you feel a sense of concern. I can assure you, and it was no different in a, no different in a carrier. And in fact, it was quite interesting in the generation of the of the three of us and carrier uh, uh, operations. We've gone from an era with the former Ark Royal, uh, where where the fixed wing capability was extraordinary. But the engineering was, in many cases, um, much more basic, not, not to say not complex, but much more basic in generation. In the Invincible class, we were just at the crossroads, uh, the original computer system that drove the operations room uh, in the Invincible class uh, was a space about the size of a double-deck London bus, and it had the computing power of about one-eighth of a, a modern PC uh, sitting on somebody's desk. And so that contradiction, uh, of course, was migrating. And by the time I was in command and David was in command, uh, we had masses of computing power completely unforeseen sitting literally on desktops. And the big space down in the, the double-deck bus space uh, was beginning to be thought about as a multi-gym or something else uh, because we didn't need all the physical volume. Now, that brought with it, uh, of course, uh, a lot of new challenges. Uh, in order to maintain the 24-7 continuity of connection, uh, let's say uh, uh, globally, uh, for intelligence and seeing a picture and operations, uh, you were often dependent on a microchip somewhere deep in some uh, bit, and you needed the skill both to identify where that was, and then, and then it's back to logistics, you needed the spares back up, to make sure you had that microchip or that spare. And that affected radars, radios, satellite communications, display and connectivity. And it was never good enough, I found, to be able to say to uh, fleet headquarters, I'm sorry, I can't speak to you just now, the phone isn't working. Uh, they didn't really have much tolerance for that. So it was really important to keep that going. Yeah, I mean, the, the sort of almost unimaginable waves of complexity the moment you think about it. Jerry, I have a um, a small boat and this summer I've managed to uh, ram it on a sandbank. I've broken the propeller. I've also broken my navigation system. And then after that happened, my radio broke. And then I accidentally pulled the cord on my life jacket. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and <well>. so <laughs> you deal with one problem and you think you've sorted it out. And then unbeknownst to you, the devil of the sea has created another problem which you could never even have imagined coming. Do you? Can you associate with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the problem of being offshore is you're on your own, as I said earlier. And, you know, one problem leads to another and very quickly you're in, you're in real hot water. But, uh, I mean, I think on the whole engineering side, um, absolutely. I think the, the challenge we've got now moving forward, certainly the Queen Elizabeth class carriers, is this blend from what I call agricultural engineering, oil and grease and gearboxes and shaft lines and engines, 
uh, through to this digital future, which we're bringing very quickly. And the F-35B joint uh, strike fighter, the Lightning, which is the new fixed-wing aircraft our new carriers are, perhaps the last word in what we call fifth-generation engineering. Uh, they are truly uh, space-age and brings with it a whole new suite of complexities of engineering challenge, uh, where they do self-diagnostics, the aircraft talk to each other, they talk to the ship without any human interaction. Uh, but on the other side of the coin, we're still engineers who need to, you know, test the fuel and uh, you know, uh, grease the wheels and so forth. So, you know, the the system of systems now for a carrier strike group has become a lot more complicated again, uh, which requires some very, very uh, well-educated young people to come on and board, be our technicians, our engineers on board. But the range of challenge now is, is much more uh, significant. But I'd like to pick up on David's point is that on the agricultural point, there are these you're only as strong as your weakest engineering link and uh, comes back to your propeller piece. But uh, I always find auxiliaries are always the challenge I to keep my eye on as an aircraft carrier because you tend to find that most aircraft will operate each day. But it comes down to things like chilled water plants as well as aircraft lifts, that it's the, the things that are not very sexy or not very uh, particularly exciting. They're the underpinning engineering pieces that you really need to keep running. So if you lose chilled water or air conditioning, then you are in deep hot water. So, um, yeah, keeping your eye on it as the captain all the time, it's, it's a real challenge. Yeah, it must be quite stressful waking up and wondering what's going to go wrong today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, well, you have a lot of good uh, engineering officers who come and report to you uh, first thing in the morning and uh, last thing in the evening. So you, you, you keep your finger on the pulse pretty carefully. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if you have an accumulation of uh, what we call operational deficiencies, opdefs, defects, if you like, on the ship, then it does become a real concern. But this is what was all about judgment and engineering judgment of knowing uh, what you need to take with you to fix stuff, uh, what you need to, to when you come alongside. Uh, and also that last mile, if you need to get a spare part from a shore, that you need to have the flexibility to go in and get it. But fundamentally, this is about having your rucksack well packed at the start of the trip. You take with you what you need, and that's based on experience and consumption rates and knowing what's likely to fail. 
so you can take the right stores and the right spares with you from the get-go. Uh, that's really important. And that comes from operating carriers persistently and around the world. So as a Navy, you start to know what you're doing. Yeah, and I, I really highlighting a key point there is that once you've got ships in a, in a Navy, I think from whatever period we're talking about, you can't stop ever because it gets rusty very quickly and then the, 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 the people forget what's going on. Um, it's really, really important. You, it's, it's, it's such a decision for any state to make to create a Navy because they're in it for the long haul. Um, Roy, we've been talking a lot about machines. Let's talk about the people who, who operate them. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a really interesting uh, question, this one, because we've had in our minds as we thought about this discussion with you, uh, the continuity and the change. What what really is the continuous strand through all of the Navy's history and what's changed? And of course, the people are utterly the continuity from beginning to end. And depending how you frame your history, uh, the Royal Navy has been doing what it does in one form or another for at least a thousand years. And you can find traces of the concern for quality of people in each of the generations. And some uh, who perhaps haven't looked at it closely enough get a feeling that we survived uh, solely on press ganging. And of course, that was never true. Uh, the press gang had a very particular role uh, and and it was, of course, an important part of uh, manning the fleet, but it was not the overwhelming part. And it was true in Nelson's time that one of the decisive factors in uh, the various uh, uh, combats that he entered in and won uh, was the quality of training and the capability of the people in ships. And one of the fascinating things about Nelson was his uh, letters and the legacy he's left us in terms of research and study. And he was often writing to his captains uh, about logistics. He wrote to them too about operational matters and uh, the, the fleet doctrine of operations. But many of the letters were about very basic things, almost, you might think, to the obsessive degree of reminding captains who probably already knew perfectly well what they had to do. But it was about keeping the people healthy, not altruistically, although I'm sure that was in the mind, but because the healthier they were, the better they fought, making sure that they were trained well. And when you look at the way in which cannon were operated during, for example, the Battle of Trafalgar, the rate of fire from the British fleet was higher than was achieved by the combined fleet against them. And that was a training bit. And in the collections of the National Maritime Museum, you can find the uh, drill manual that was created for this particular operation because it took a lot of people. So fast forward into the carrier era uh, that we're discussing and people are absolutely the fundamental. And I often face questions when I left the Navy to become a museum director uh, from museum people. Uh, you know, what is it that set you up to be a uh, museum director? It was self-evidently not my PhD in history, but it was an understanding of people and to the chagrin of the paintings conservator, I did one day uh, compare her to the maintainer of the Sea Harrier in Invincible. Uh, they, I said, there are very common characteristics here. Uh, both of you uh, are extraordinary professionals with deep knowledge of your trade. And I could no more say launch that Sea Harrier than I could say hang that painting. 
because both of you would have extremely good reasons why one wouldn't fly and one wouldn't hang. And, and of course, I think she got over it after a while. But people were absolutely the continuity point. And, and I think all of us would say that uh, we depended uh, uh, vitally on heads of departments who were in many cases exceptional and wonderful leaders. But they in turn, right through the chain, depended on uh, a very good level of training and of consistency. And in the era that uh, certainly David and I were commanding the CVS, we had uh, women in the ship's company. It was still newish to the Royal Navy. And I remember standing up in front of my ship's company, as you do on day one. I took over from uh, Admiral Ian Forbes uh, in Izmir. So everybody was embarked. We had all 1,200 there. The air wing were there. We were heading from there through Suez. So we were operationally ready. And the one thing that uh, I wanted to convey was my complete backing, support, encouragement and leadership for the idea of mutual respect and diversity and that everybody counted in it in order to make the point, because when you stand in the hangar in front of 1,200 people, you are trying to connect at an individual level. And so this was no highfalutin speech. What it was, was an attempt to get to the ears of everybody. And I said, I even had a soft spot for people with ginger hair. And it got the desired uh, giggle. It was a dad joke, I know. But afterwards, uh, the day later, uh, there was a knock at my sea cabin door. So you've got to go up the island. You've got to be quite determined to get up there to the sea cabin. And there was a ginger-haired stoker who said, with a great grin on his face, "Eh, sir, what's up with us ginger-haired stokers then? So uh, clearly, ginger-haired stoker had heard, which was completely wonderful. Secondly, they had the absolute confidence to know that he could go and knock on the captain's door and tease him about it. I thought that was brilliant. So there's nothing wrong with the spirit, but you really depended on that kind of thing. So here's the thing. You go into, as I did, a civilian occupation, a museum, about as far from all of this as you might imagine. And I think to begin with, a lot of people thought, well, he's going to bring an autocratic top-down leadership style that gets stuff done by telling people what to do. And there is a popular idea that somehow the aircraft carrier captain can stand on the bridge and say, go left and go right, and things will happen that way. Well, sometimes go left and go right does work, but it never worked in any other uh, extent. You needed that confidence of human beings believing in the training, believing in the ethos of the service, wanting to be there. And I must say it was a great privilege to have an aircraft carrier because you absolutely can't uh, tell anybody much what to do you absolutely have to have a proper consensus around the operation is the key. This is what we're going to do. The communications are vital. So two very brief anecdotes to support that. I took Invincible into the Gulf. This is after the uh, Gulf War. So we were the first carrier to go uh, into the Gulf. We went all the way up to Kuwait. And we also went into Saudi. And it was quite, for many people, when you think of the average age of the ship's company, uh, it was in its 20s, early 20s, even in a ship of that size. And so there was a bit of nervousness about which you could feel. We were going through the Strait of Hormuz. Saddam Hussein was still around. So what do you do? You do old-fashioned leadership things like walk the ship. And I knew that you could make as many pipes as you liked on the main broadcast. But if you went and stood outside the naffy, whatever it was you said there would get round the ship immediately. And it was great fun to go and do that. About six o'clock in the evening, go, go and find your way down to the naffy, way down in the bowels of the ship. And you got that reaction 
well, if he's down here, it can't be that dangerous up there, or he's mad, which one is it? And, and then you'd have the conversation and they would make up their own mind based on what they saw in your eyes. So it, it's, it's a wonderful sort of continuity of the leadership of eye contact and knowing, knowing each other well enough to have that confidence in each other. And then my second anecdote was actually about an emergency that occurred when we had a fire in one of the Olympus modules. And of course, one of the things about uh, the machinery, and we've touched on the complexity, is a lot of it is hot. A lot of it is high-speed rotation. A lot of it is subject uh, to need of repair. And sometimes it can burst into flame. And so you do have a very quick reaction needed from a standing fire party. And I was very, always very confident this would work because we practised it a lot. The fire alarm went. The fire party dressed rapidly. The first two people were in the module. It was a textbook operation. The fire was extinguished. And they came out and it was only then as they took off the fear not suit and the anti-flash hoods that we realised that just through the luck of the of that particular setup, that particular watch that day, both the two who went in first were female stokers. Both did their jobs spot on right. And, you know, we never had to discuss gingerhead stokers ever again. Uh, there was a real uh, empathy and a harmony across the ship's company, which I think you have to work at and really lead and know and treasure, but and don't take it for granted. But it's a wonderful continuity, and it's the future too. Yeah, <clears throat> and uh, um, you know, humans as the most complicated machines of them all, I suppose, and the one the ones that need the most care. Uh, David, yeah, and I think I'd uh, very much endorse what Roy said and build on it. Um, in commanding the carrier, you uh, had foundation stones of training, the investment that the Navy makes in its people. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure this is still the same today, but the Navy carried, if you like, a, an excess of people because you might want 5% of your people at any one time, not in their frontline jobs, but on courses training for their next job. And that's something that civilian organisations find difficult to do because it's an overhead, but it's an extremely important overhead in the armed services where you invest in people and equip them for the next job. That is an absolutely vital foundation stone for all these skills that we've been acknowledging and talking about and, and long may it last. I think personally, your own apprenticeship for the job was quite important and we all came to it via different routes. Um, but I had served in Ark Royal number no. four, the fixed wing carrier in the 1970s <clears throat> as a young lieutenant. Uh, but I'd inevitably absorbed things as to how a carrier operated in those days. I then served in two more as a staff officer operations on an admiral staff embarked in two carriers. And again, I'd absorbed stuff so that when I came to Ark Royal, I had a pretty good understanding of how carriers operated. Leadership as well um, to the teams on board was important. And um, we've talked a lot about this engineering complexity. But when, as Jerry said, uh, your commander marine engineering comes to you in the morning or late in the evening to update you, it's important that you communicated to him or to her what was important to you, um, the port gearbox, because that uh, needed to get all the way back down the engineering chain. It may well be that um, a junior uh, maintainer somewhere working on a piece of equipment in the bowels of the ship 
really wouldn't understand the important part that they played in the operational capability of the ship. And, and there was no reason they would. But it was your job to communicate that down the command chain. And the final thing, I think, was acknowledging what the maintainers do. The aircraft maintainers in particular were often working almost all night in the hangar, getting aircraft ready for the next day. And that walking about bit that Roy mentioned in the NAFI queue or in some of the spaces around the ship, um, just acknowledging that last night you knew uh, that such and such a team had worked all night to get that Merlin helicopter ready again. The fact that you looked them in the eye and thanked them was really important. Um, and, and I used to quite enjoy it when Jerry, who I was privileged to have him as the navigator of um, Ark Royal, uh, would uh, say on the main broadcast for the second time in a few minutes, will the captain please contact the bridge? Um, and I was uh, somewhere in two-deck port talking to aircraft maintainers um, about that sort of thing. And, and that was an important part of um, leadership. And I'm sure Jerry's done it subsequently in his commands. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much, David. Jerry? Well, I'll pick up that last point. Having having served in both HMS Invincible under uh, Captain Clare's command and also in Art Royal under Captain Nelson, uh, Nelson, obviously, my my I, uh, my training was excellent. So, um, yes, it, it's funny, isn't it? Um, aircraft carriers are complicated. And, um, you know, I think I spent something like 12 years of my career in, in carriers, both UK and US, and uh, I certainly lent on that hugely bringing Queen Elizabeth out as the new class of carrier. But listen, you know, I, 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 I couldn't endorse more what Roy and David have said. You know, aircraft carriers are little towns. They operate 24-7. They're always something's going on. They're a hub of activity. And people are fascinating, aren't they? Uh, interesting enough, in the CVS, in the Invincible class, we had um, the 23,000 tonnes. Uh, Queen Elizabeth class is 70,000 tonnes. But broadly speaking, the same size of ship's company and reflecting the fact that people now remain absolutely critical, of course, uh, but that innovation, robotics, autonomy and miniaturisation is starting to creep into the fleet uh, because people are expensive um, to train, but also to pay and, of course, pensions. So we're constantly now on the, on the progress bar to try and bring in as much automation innovation as we can to keep the numbers of people on our new ships down. But the Carastrike group right now, based around Queen Elizabeth, has about 3,000 people in that group. Um, and I think I think something like David, when we were in uh, Ark Royal, we had something like 20 nationalities on board, which oddly enough is exactly the same number as um, Horatio Nelson had on victory at uh, the Battle of Trafalgar. So the Royal Navy remains an incredibly diverse system of people anyway. Um, and today, even more so. And of course, on Queen Elizabeth right now, we have the Royal Air Force, of course, jointly manning our uh, lightning aircraft, but also the US Marine Corps have a complete squadron on board. Uh, which is fantastic, as well as army and civilian people on board. So, and, and carriers are just fascinating human uh, soups of people. Uh, and the average age remains about 24, 25 years old. So old duffers like the captain have to reflect that down below, you know, it's a very different ecosystem. And that culture mix is really fascinating. I always found as the captain, whether in my CVS days or now in Queen Elizabeth, just a fascination of walking around the ship. And as Roy <laughs> eloquently described... You know, the the wonderful nature of our people who decide to go away from home for months on end. And aren't we so lucky we have people in society willing to do that still? Because being offshore in a, in a warship is odd. You know, 
against modern society where you're disconnected from friends and family and your Wi-Fi and your social media and your telephone and so forth. But that in itself is create, creates a really unique culture on board. You're on your own, you rely on your oppo, you rely on your friends. When something goes wrong, like a fire or a flood or, heaven forbid, a crash on deck or you lose an aircraft, then that team spirit, uh, that, you know, that unique... Uh, wonderful nature of people coming together. I think it's best encapsulated in a warship and never more so in an aircraft carrier where suddenly 1,200, 1,500 people will come together uh, very quickly to to sort things out. So, um, yeah, people remain critical to us. Uh, We are a a human-based system at the end of the day as part and parcel of wearing these stripes on my, my shoulders as the two, as David and Roy have both done. It's the number one responsibility for any officers to his people um, of all types, all si- shapes of size and all ages. And uh, we are a very rich society and best for it. Yeah, I sense a real pride from the three of you to have, uh, have been involved in aircraft carriers. Um, we've got a few minutes left. I'd just like to, uh, to talk very briefly before we leave about the issues of command and how the carrier acts as a command platform for a task group or a task force. Uh, David, your thoughts on this? Yeah, uh, the carrier almost always um, was the centrepiece of a task group um, and therefore in charge um, of a group of ships. Um, In some circumstances, um, then it was uh, possible that the captain of the carrier would be the task group commander. Um, And so in addition to all those things that we've been talking about, um, the captain would be thinking about um, how uh, the ships in the task group were to be deployed uh, tactically Um, about the logistics in the widest sense and so on. More frequently, um, the carrier would have an embarked one-star Commodore, as the Queen Elizabeth Group has at the moment, I think, or an embarked um, two-star Rear Admiral, which was more the case in the days of uh, the Invincible class. Um, And so you had that extra layer of command on board. The Invincible class had been planned to some degree to have um, an embarked admiral on board. There was an admiral's, there was accommodation for the admiral, there was accommodation for the staff, uh, there was a flag planning room, which actually had been carved out of the ship's company dining hall, and there was a flag operations room. So the wherewithal was there. What was interesting from the people point of view is the tensions that that, that could produce. And so when you got an embarked flag officer um, who was looking at the wider picture of the task group, Um, If the personalities of the Admiral and the Captain didn't chime, um, then you could get tensions. And the stories in the Navy of that happening were legion. Um, And certainly when I was appointed to be a staff operations officer uh, to an Admiral's staff, it was one of the things that was in my mind most of all. And I remember going talking to other people of command of rank who had served in the carriers saying, can you give me any advice? How do I stop the Admiral and the Captain falling out? Um, In reality, I didn't find um, it was a major problem. Um, Though as the Staff Operations Officer, I did spend a lot of time dashing between uh, the flag spaces on five deck underneath um, the hangar and dashing up to the bridge and communicating between the Admiral and the Captain. Um, I then became a Captain of a Carrier, of course, and only for one operation did I have an embarked Admiral. Um, And I realised how important it was uh, to be alongside the Admiral in his thinking um, so that you knew that you were driving the carrier um, 
in the way that he required for the operation that he was delivering, but equally so that he knew what problems you had and what your priorities were in terms of keeping the carrier going. Um, I was then fortunate to be embarked later as an admiral in a carrier uh, and, and hoped that I'd absorbed all those lessons. Um, in fact, I got on with the captain of the carrier extremely well, and I like to think that we operated pretty much um, as a duo. Um, so there was an important perspective there of carrier command that could go wrong if there was a personality clash or you didn't communicate properly. But as ever, it was people and it was communicating and sharing thoughts. Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure it's working well today in the Far East, Jerry. It is. <laughs> you get a thumb, <laughs> thumbs up there. Um, uh, Roy, let's just hear from you quickly. Yeah, I think that's a very good summary from David. And I, I think we've spoken earlier about how we cut our teeth in smaller ships earlier in our career. And I'd been the uh, commander in command of a destroyer during the Gulf Patrol just towards the end of the Cold War, so end of the 1980s. And we had a Commodore in the area whose job was to uh, be the task group commander across several ships on the patrol. And he was billeted with me. Now, those who know the Type 42 destroyer will know that there was barely room for one captain, let alone a captain and a Commodore. And uh, it was very important that we learned how to do that and do it well, because, of course, uh, he was, by definition, much more senior than me, much more experienced from a completely different line of trade, as it turned out, a different branch. And yet we were sharing the meal times together uh, and also uh, understanding each other operationally. And there was nowhere to hide. We had to make that work as human beings. And we did. And it was actually a, 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 a wonderful way to learn. Later in the carrier, uh, you are insulated a bit by numbers. But I think David's spoken very well about the relationship between the Admiral and the Captain. I think that sensitivity must also exist between the members of the staff and the ship staff. And, and how that works is, again, can be prey to human frailty. Uh, but mostly, and I would say 90% of the time, it worked really well and there was mutual respect. But an anecdote to show that it was always just near the surface of thinking. Uh, we were in the Mediterranean with the flag embarked and one of the Air Force Harriers fell in the sea at four o'clock in the morning. And this was, uh, we later discovered, uh, because the pilot had a, a brain tumour that he was unaware of and he had a dizzy spell at 4am and he was just coming in to land. All the sea conditions were good, the wind conditions were good, but as he drew up alongside, his his orientation failed. Uh, the the aeroplane inverted and went in the sea. We did get the pilot back. Uh, he's been promoted since then three times in the Royal Air Force and is still serving and was very grateful for the fact that he was fished from the sea by the Royal Navy uh, despite the fact that the winch on the helicopter failed and he was dunked 22 times on the way back uh, to the ship, which he thought at the time, I think, was a naval joke. It wasn't. Uh, it was a genuine winch failure. But, of course, the thing is, the embarked flag knew exactly his place. A former CVS uh, captain, he called me, I remember, about 4.30 uh, on the bridge phone from the Admiral's cabin way down aft uh, in the ship, and he said, Roy, I'm here if you need me. Uh, I won't be in touch again. And it was exactly right. I didn't need him. 
uh, of course I needed him, but I didn't need him in the sense of recovering the pilot and recovering as we did the aeroplane, because in the course of that, I learned that the GR7, which has a composite wing, floats. Uh, I already found out earlier that the Sea Harrier, which doesn't have a composite wing, doesn't float. In both cases, we got the pilots back, but we managed to get the GR7 back on deck before breakfast. Uh, and then this is a nice reference to humour and how it still works for you in a ship. Our next visit was Barcelona the following morning. And I said to the chief boatswain's mate, uh, we need that uh, that wreck on the on the upper deck um, uh, camouflaging buffer in some way. Straight away, he said, uh, I'll do that straight away. And I looked over the bridge screen about two hours later to see, just before we entered harbour, that it was covered in a tarpaulin that was pink, purple, red and striped. And it was a bit like saying, I'm here. I sent for the chief boatswain's mate and I said, buffer, I said, camouflage. He said, it's Barcelona Football Club covers, colours, sir. They'll love it. And indeed, we did get on the front page of the local newspaper for paying a tribute to Barcelona Football Club. And nobody really outside the ship knew it was a GR7 on its back with its wheels in the air. <laughs> Good. A, a, bit of, a bit of genius inspiration there. Um, Jerry, uh, you get the last word. How, how, how are things going uh, today? Yeah, fine. Well, interestingly, so many things stay the same. Uh, in my career, having obviously worked for these two, uh, I've, I've been at just about every other, every rank and level of an aircraft carrier and through the staff, through flag, being the flag captain and also then on to being the task group commander. So I'd just like to reiterate the points already made about the uh, how getting along with each other is important and how that really comes from the carrier strike group commander, who currently is a commodore, but can be an admiral, um, setting very clearly his intent uh, for the task group and everyone understanding what he wants. And that really then sets the tone right and the staff's relationships with the, um, the wardroom of the, of the aircraft carrier. Uh, so fundamentally, I agree, you know, at the end of the day, it's about understanding what your roles and responsibilities are. So if the, cap the flag captain delivering the ship and the flight deck to the Admiral, the Commodore is critical. So he's looking inwards, making ship operate and work and deliver. Uh, whereas the staff, of course, are fighting the external battle and coordinating the task group and the ships and the aircraft uh, to do the job and the mission in hand. But currently, yes, uh, Commodore Steve Morehouse is our Commodore in charge of our Queen Elizabeth Carrier Strike Group in the Far East. He has with him a Carrier Strike Group battle staff, the brains of the, of the deployment, if you like, of about 70 or 80 people. Uh, they come from a mixed band from the Air Force and the US Marine Corps, of course, in specialists. I think the thing that's changed a lot of the last five or 10 years is the fact we're integrated much more in a command and control sense with all the other domains of land, but also now space, cyber, and the agencies. So the, the aircraft carriers now become much less of a ship than a real node of information. Because uh, information operations, the manipulation of da data and digital means is critical in the modern battle space. And it goes well into space, right down to the seabed. And the carrier has to have all that information available to it in his operations room. So the, the Admiral or the Commodore can make the right decisions to place the aircraft carrier in the right position, but also to support the wider fight in the most appropriate way. So again, this sophistication, this digitised battle space we now have, means that the command and control of the aircraft carrier has become really very, very complicated indeed. And it pushes to David's point about training and making, as we 
get the carrier group together in the UK that you train it up together very carefully so that when you send it around the world, it knows what it's doing. It's, it's, a, it's a very complex business because you're living in a much richer ecosystem now with other, other actors. And of course, currently our carrier strike group um, in the Far East has an American destroyer attached to it and also a Dutch frigate. So not only do we have all this space and cyber in the different digital domains, but also you have our allies now completely integrated into that UK carrier strike group. And whilst it's sovereign, uh, the fact is we delegate a lot of duties to our very close allies. So all that uh, means that the carrier strike group commander, the, the Commodore at the moment, has a lot on his plate. And he has to have, be obviously have a first-class staff around him. And that is why the Royal Navy remains professional and uncompromising on its standards of, of training, uh, but also in its command and control. Because if you haven't got the right command and control, you might as well stay at home. <laughs> a very, very important place to end. Thank you all so much for your time today. Thanks everyone for listening. Do please follow us on social media. In particular, please seek out the Mariner's Mirror podcast on YouTube where you will find an ever-growing library of the most wonderful, innovative videos presenting our maritime past in entirely new ways. Please spread the word. Please tell your friends about the podcast. And above all, please join the Society for Nautical Research. It doesn't cost very much, but your subscription fee will help support this podcast, will help publish the Mariner's Mirror journal, will help preserve our maritime heritage. And as a paying member, you get to come to our annual dinner on board HMS Victory. What a treat. <laughs>